Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 16 and 17 today. Don't panic because next week we'll look at verses 18 through the rest of the chapter. So if you think, oh, we're going to do two verses at a time, not necessarily the case. Just today. Romans chapter 1 We'll be looking at verses 16 and 17. Let's pray to prepare our hearts for the word of God this morning. Father, we thank you for this privilege that we have to open your word to hear from you. We ask God that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that you would give our hearts life to live. Lord, would you instruct us now in your truth and lead us for your glory in Christ's name, amen. In a recent blog post by a pretty well-known Christian blogger at the Gospel Coalition, this blog post was called, Should We Pull the Plug on Cable News? There in this blog post, Trevin Wax made some helpful observations that at least should cause Christians to evaluate their news diet. He actually suggests putting cable news in its proper place, perhaps even doing away with it altogether, but... I think he does at least give us some helpful things to consider that have led him to consider even his own news intake. And he gives three things that have caused him to consider this. First of all, he said, there's the reality of the disappearing aim of journalism. Very few reporters today seek to be unbiased or objective. They're always kind of putting their own spin on it. And by the way, this is across the board. So don't think your news outlet is the way to go. It's all bad. Second, he said the disappearing desire for truth. Today, he says, we go to news to affirm what we already think instead of seeking information we need to know. And then third, he said that the reality of the rise of news as a show. News outlets today are more concerned with what's good for ratings instead of seeking to inform the public in general. I think when I read that blog, or he goes on to, to talk about other things there and encourage us. He doesn't necessarily say pull the plug on it, but maybe many of us do. He says, I think that I could just summarize his overarching concern this way. When it comes to cable news, it's hard to have much confidence. It's hard to trust the news and the media and the messages that you hear today because of these realities. There's always a a bias. There's always an agenda. There's always an objective. We're inundated with news from various perspectives, biases, and agendas. So who are we to trust? There's not much today that gives us a lot of confidence. Much of the news that you and I hear or watch, again, is carrying agendas of persuasion. And often, if we're honest, does a pretty good job of persuading us, influencing how we think. But the reality with news or media in general 
is that it does not have power to give you life. It may have influence. It may persuade you. It may lead you to make certain decisions, but at the end of the day, news in general is lifeless. It still has its limits. I'm reminded of a book that was written back in 1985. I didn't read it in 1985. I read it later. It's a book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He was so prophetic in that book. He even writes there, most of our daily news is inert, consisting of information that gives us something to talk about, but cannot lead to any meaningful action. Now, I know you could say, well, there's, there's exceptions to that. I could say this and that. Weather, for example, leads me to meaningful action. Well, sure. But in general, just think about the news you watch. I mean, think about, does it change how you're going to live your life or the things that you do at work, through your family? It has its limits. As we consider the letter to the Romans, Paul introduces himself as a man with a message. A man who is eagerly anticipating his journey, his visit to Rome, and his longing to preach the gospel there. And the reason that he was so eager to preach the gospel in Rome was because he knew without a doubt that it was powerful and life-giving. He says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. But then he goes on in these two verses that we'll look at today to unpack why he's so eager. Look at them with me. Verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. To look at Paul's argument here, especially in in the the epistles, you'll see this, but just how how logically... uh, these letters are put together. And here you see an example of that. Paul in verse 15 says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now notice, notice how the next few phrases are strung together by a series of fours, F-O-R. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome for or because, same, same idea, Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So you see just his, his... his argument that as it just continues to flow, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome because I'm not ashamed of it, because it's the power of God, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. If I had to summarize kind of the main point or the main idea of these few verses here, it would just simply be stated this way. We can be absolutely confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can have 
absolute confidence. There's not a lot of confidence. There's not, I can't think of anything else really in the world today, messages, media coming at us where you can say that. But with this message, you can say that. We can be absolutely confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what, it, what that word gospel means. It, you may hear gospel a lot, but again, what are we talking about when we say the word gospel? We're talking about the message of who Jesus Christ is, his person, who he is, and his work, what he did, so, so that we can know God. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ to bring us into a right relationship with God. That's what we mean, kind of in a nutshell, when we're talking about gospel. So here we're saying that we can have absolute confidence in the gospel. In fact, in the gospel, there is no shame to be found. Think about that. We're we're not too eager about things we're ashamed about, are we? We're just not. Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome because I am not ashamed of this gospel. So why can we have such confidence? Why did Paul have this level of confidence and and absence of shame in this message? Well, I want us to look at several reasons why. And therefore, several reasons why you and I can have the same confidence, the same commitment to this good news. We're going to see three in particular. We're going to see the reason we can have confidence in the gospel is because of the power of God, the provision of the gospel, and the promise of the gospel. So the power of the gospel, the provision of the gospel, the promise of the gospel, right here in verses 16 and 17. Let's look, first of all, at the power of the gospel. This is, prompt, this is reason number one as to why we can be confident in this gospel, in this good news. Paul's purpose throughout his ministry was a clear one. He said it already in, in this chapter, that he had been called to be a servant of Jesus Christ, set apart as an apostle, and, and set apart more particularly for the gospel of God. This was his mission. This was what his life was about. He was about the good news of Jesus. He knew what his calling was, and he had an unshakable confidence in the news he had been commissioned to preach. Some of you know what it's like to be part of something that you're called to represent that maybe you don't have that much confidence in. Maybe it's at work or whatever is going on. You're called to kind of embrace something and, and to sell something, so to speak, that you don't have a lot of confidence in. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to be a salesman or hard to, to represent something that you don't have a lot of confidence in. Paul says, that's not the case here. I've been called to be an ambassador. I've been called to be an apostle. I've been set apart for the gospel, and I have absolute confidence in this message that God has commissioned me to preach. His confidence was not in himself. Paul did not have this level of confidence, or Paul Paul was not ashamed of this gospel because he had it together. No, he was confident because... He knew that the Lord was the one who powerfully worked in and through the gospel to save sinners. I want you to notice a couple of things about the power of the gospel. What it does, for Paul says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First of all, the power of the gospel, we see that it's powerful in what it provides. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
And when we think about the word salvation, we, that's a church word, right? That's no, a biblical word. So we use that term a lot. We, we, you know, sometimes it's good to just pause when you, use a lot, when you use words a lot. I mean, when's the last time you really thought about the definition of salvation? We should do that from time to time. We should think, okay, well, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by gospel? What do we mean by salvation? We should, it, it's, it's a healthy thing to do. So salvation, again, is a term that we use a lot in church, but what is it? You can talk a lot about just this concept or this term of salvation. Simply on its own, it means deliverance or rescue. And this word, especially for Jews, would have had a lot of, of embedded kind of impact. The Jewish people, for example, had long awaited a full and final deliverance. They had lived much of their lives under oppression. Some of that due to their own sin. But even now, as Paul's writing, he's writing to, to uh, a church in Rome where that has both Jews and Gentiles in it. But again, the Jewish people, for example, would, would have even still been struggling under the oppression of Rome. They, they had longed for the day when God's salvation, full and final deliverance would come. And what Paul is saying is that it has. It has come. If you look at Paul's writings and others, you don't have to just look at Paul, you'll find that it has both, this, this idea of salvation has both kind of a, you can talk about it from a negative angle or a positive angle. Salvation means to be delivered from or rescued from sin, from guilt, from slavery, from punishment, from death. You're being saved from something. Something that's bad, you're being plucked away from it. Or you could talk about salvation from a positive angle. We're, we're saved. God, when, when he brings salvation, he brings us to righteousness, he brings us to holiness. He brings us to freedom. He brings us to fellowship. He gives us eternal life. So you could talk about it from that angle as well. So we're saved from sin to holiness, to righteousness, to life, from death to life. Even the Bible talks about salvation in past, present, and future terms. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. William Hendrickson, I love how he defined this term, kind of encapsulating all of these things. He says, to be saved, to have salvation, means to be emancipated from the greatest evil and be placed in possession of the greatest good. To be saved means to be emancipated from the greatest evil and be placed in possession of the greatest good. This is what the gospel is all about. This message is backed and empowered by the power of God being the one and only message that saves. Power of God. You see it in other places. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you see it there. Paul says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, the gospel, the word of the cross, it is the power of God. Because the gospel is powerful. The gospel, listen, there's a, this is a small distinction, but it's, it's small but big, right? That sounds really strange. But just a, sounds small, but it's really big, a big deal. The gospel 
does not merely have power to make salvation possible. The gospel has power to make salvation effectual. It actually effects it. It causes it to happen. It brings about salvation. Friends, as followers of Jesus, that, that, if, if you're here today and you're a Christian, that ought to amaze you. Friend, you indeed are a miraculous work of God whereby his power through the gospel illuminated your heart, created in you the capacity and desire to believe in Christ. You are a Christian today not because you finally got your act together. Not because you determined in your heart at one point to be a Christian. Not because you saw this as a good thing for your family and therefore decided maybe I should go to church and do this Christian thing. You're not a Christian because you got some ritual in the church just right. If you're here today and you profess to be a follower of Jesus, it's because the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ came upon you. And God raised your dead life from the, or dead body, or dead soul from the grave spiritually and gave you new life. The gospel is not just this, this series of words that we just talk about. It actually has power to effect change in you. It's powerful in what it provides. It provides salvation. It's also powerful in who it reaches. The gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. While this salvation is most definitely God's powerful work, it must be received by faith. You see here in this passage that to everyone who believes, verse 17, you hear you see two references to faith, faith and belief, all the same word. Everyone who believes. To believe is not simply, in this case, when we're talking about what this word believe, what this word faith means, it's not simply to have an intellectual assent to something. There's a lot of things you believe. Believing here includes an act of your will when you put your full trust and hope in Jesus to save you. We know based upon this passage that God has done all the heavy lifting. God has done everything required for you to be saved. It is finished in that sense. All you must do is receive it in faith. A lot of times people get all hung up over that. They'll say, well, it sounds like faith is a work. It's not a work. If you read Ephesians chapter two, we know that faith is even a gift of God. He's given you the capacity to exercise this trust and hope. Faith, you can think about it this way, is an empty hand stretched out to God that embraces his provision already given to you, provided for you. Notice who this is good for. Everyone who believes. Later he qualifies the word everyone when he says the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jews and Gentiles. Everybody in the world. Let 
one of the beautiful realities about the gospel is that it has no ethnic or geographical or political or financial boundaries. The gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone, Jew or Gentile, that believes in Jesus. This news is good because it's unbiased and it's always relevant and it's always available to everyone. And this is important to see and it's important to hear because if you come here today and you would, maybe you're struggling with what this Christianity thing's about and, and maybe you would even say, well, I don't think I'm a Christian. I don't know that I am. I don't think that I am. Or maybe you'd say, I'm not a Christian. And the, the Bible just would teach you this morning that, that God has done everything necessary for people just like you, powerfully working through his son to provide salvation to everyone who believes. And I would just simply say, are you believing not just intellectually, but are you trusting in, are you depending upon, are you casting yourself at the mercy of Jesus? This is how salvation comes. God's powerfully worked. He gives this message. He opens your eyes and your ears to see and hear it, and you embrace it. Friends, if you would just believe today, if you would trust in Jesus, the promise is that you will be saved. You'll receive deliverance, rescue, salvation. You'll be saved from sin to righteousness. You'll be raised from death, given new life. And fellow Christians, if this is the case, if the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also to the Greek, then how often are you sharing it? Friends, it crosses all boundaries. It has power. And I know what we often think, well, I'm just not sure the people that I'm in contact with, they're gonna buy it. I'm just not sure that they're gonna believe. I'm sorry, but I don't know that I read in this passage that it's your power into salvation, that it's your convincing abilities under salvation, that, that you have the capacity to argue well enough for this person's eyes to open and ears to be, you, know, you just don't know this person, you just don't know how hard they are. I, well, the same guy writing this letter killed Christians and God powerfully saved him. Paul is a pretty hard guy. I'm just saying. It's true. There are people around you that, that are difficult and they, they, don't, they don't want to hear the message. They, but listen, there are those around you that God is preparing and God has prepared to receive this gospel. And it, it is his power unto salvation for those who believe. And you say, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what, I struggle with what to say. Well, a couple things there. One, if you are a Christian, how did that come about? This is also another good question to ask from time to time. On what basis, you say you're a Christian, on what basis are you a Christian? Why do you say that? What, what in your mind, in your heart, what, what do you think that makes you that? I was to ask, if you were to die today, where would you go? You'd say heaven, why? Why would you go to heaven? Why are you a Christian? So because I've believed in Jesus. 
Yes. It's a very simple message, isn't it? It's not that hard to articulate to someone else. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to, sit, to talk to others about salvation. You may not have all of the, the wealth of, of knowledge and, and, and all of these apologetic arguments, helpful as they are. You may not have all of that, but listen, when I read this passage, it is not your power unto salvation. The gospel is God's power unto salvation. It's not your power to save. We would all be surprised if we would just simply be faithful and persevere in that faithfulness, how often God will use people like us with inadequate words, with stumbling things in our, coming out of our mouth, and with fear and trembling. If we would just simply point people to where the power is, God will do his work. He will do his work. Power of the gospel. Second, we see reason we can have confidence, the reason we can be unashamed of this gospel is because of the provision of the gospel. Seeing the power of the gospel, now the provision of the gospel. Notice the next four found in verse 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness of God revealed. That word revealed is, is the same word as apocalypse. It didn't happen yesterday, by the way. Imagine that. No one knows the day or time. I mean, anyway, that's another sermon for another day. Jesus doesn't even know. The Father hasn't even told him. The righteousness of God is revealed. This is a huge phrase. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is one of the most important phrases Paul will ever write. It's one of the most important phrases in this entire letter and in this entire book. The righteousness of God. Why is that? And why is that the case? Why does he use this phrase? I want you to think about that a minute. Righteousness of God for in it. So just follow with me. Let's go back through his argument here. I'm eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Why, why did he say, for in it, the grace of God is revealed? Paul knew him a lot about grace. He writes a lot about grace. Why didn't he say, for the grace of God is revealed? Why didn't he say, for the love of God is revealed? Why didn't he say, for the forgiveness of God is revealed? For the way to heaven is revealed? Why didn't he say that? Why righteousness of God? Well, if we're going to ask that question, we need to ask a second question. What is the righteousness of God? Apparently it's important. Why is it important? Well, what is it? When you think about the righteousness of God just in English, that, English language is, is difficult. I know we grew up just speaking, but it, it, you have to, it's not as clear. Righteousness of God. Well, that could refer to the character of God, right? God is righteous, he is holy, he's just, he does always that which is right. 
Or it could mean righteousness of God, his standard, that he has a holy, a righteous standard that we are held accountable to. That would be another way to to talk about God's righteousness, the righteousness of God. It could be his character, it could be his standard, or it could be something that he is giving, that he is doing. I think for us to understand this righteousness of God, we need to keep reading because Paul kind of gives us a clue here in verse 17 with this really weird phrase, from faith for faith. It may sound odd, from faith for faith, but it's important. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What, is that, what does that mean? What this means is that the righteousness of God is revealed or uncovered by faith from start to finish, from beginning to end. It's a way of saying, Paul's using this phrase as a way of saying that the righteousness of God is revealed entirely by faith. And then he quotes the Old Testament as proof. He throws in a little little verse from Habakkuk, chapter two, verse four. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So now he's talking about the righteous living by faith when we know that God is already righteous. So now he's referring to the righteous. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there's our clue. He's not describing the Christian life per se as much as he is talking about how the Christian finds life. So here, the righteousness of God is a gift from God received by faith. Again, if it was referring to God's character, although God's character is very much part of this, can't separate it really, but if it was only talking about the character of God, he could have revealed his character whether we have faith or not. The fact that there is a requirement of faith here then makes it clear to us that this righteousness of God is not talking about the character of God as much as it is as, it is, as a gift that God gives to those who have faith. Now, if you're still tracking and, and awake, turn over to, to Romans 5. I'll show you I'm not just making this up. Hopefully, you don't believe that. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to get there, chapter 5, one of these days. Paul says, if because of one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam there, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness leading to eternal life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The gift of righteousness. In fact, if you go down to verse 19, for by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience. He's comparing Adam and Christ here. He's, he's looking at this two, these two examples, these two men. Through Adam, sin came. Through Christ, righteousness came. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Back to chapter one. Luther, Martin Luther called this the great exchange 
where Jesus takes upon himself our sin and we are given or credited with his righteousness. This is absolutely crucial to the gospel and to salvation. Listen, your greatest need, period, your greatest need is to be declared righteous before a righteous God. That is your greatest need. It's my greatest need. Your greatest need is to be made right with God, to be declared in the right, to be accepted as righteous. The problem, we know, is that we're not. You say, well, God's God of love, a God of grace. He'll just kind of overlook. God doesn't overlook your sin. If he did, it would make him less than good because he is just, he is right. He must punish, he must deal with sin. He doesn't just overlook it. No, he sees it and he has to deal with it because he's holy. And friends, we all are going to stand before God at the judgment one day and there's going to be this great separation, the righteous to eternal life and the unrighteous to eternal death. And here's the issue, none of us are righteous on our own, nor can we ever produce enough good in our lives to get ourselves to heaven on our own. Every part of us has been impacted by sin. Listen, even on your best day, even on your best day, you're not good enough, even on your best day. Isaiah reminds us in chapter 64, verse six, that we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags or polluted garments. You go home and look up what that really means. And when you're grossed out, this is, that's how righteous you are in God's eyes. That's how good your righteousness is before a holy God. So if you're depending on your righteousness, you're in a world of hurt, and so am I. Friends, we deceive ourselves frequently thinking that surely God will, maybe he'll grade on a curve. That doesn't grade on a curve. It's pass or fail with him. And all of us left to ourselves will fail. But, there's good news. It sounds bad. It is bad. The good news, and part of the reason that Paul is so eager and he's so busting at the seams and he's so confident and he's so unashamed of this message is because God's power comes through the gospel to grant, to give this gift of righteousness. Yes, he makes it clear that man's righteousness will never suffice. Never. You can't do enough good or be good enough to earn a right standing before God, but in his mercy, God has provided the very righteousness you and I need. This is the good news of the gospel. The very thing that God demands of us that we cannot give, he supplies. If you look at another one of Paul's letters in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, 
Philippians 3 verse 8, Paul's kind of going through his own personal testimony a bit there. And he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is why Paul was so eager, he was so confident, he was so unashamed. He preached a message that had power, a message that provided the very thing that God demands. The third reason that he was so confident and we can be confident is the promise of the gospel. Salvation is a work of God that comes through the gospel empowered by God. Again, it provides the very thing that God demands and we don't have. And the good news is that this righteousness is available. This righteousness that that God demands that we have to be accepted before him, to be be able to go to heaven and and to be with him forever is is a righteousness that he himself has provided. Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk here. He's, He's using the Old Testament here to support and make his point. He says there, the righteous shall live by faith. Salvation is by faith. It's always been. That's an Old Testament verse. Salvation in the Old Testament, by faith. Salvation in the New Testament, by faith. Friends, the the promise of the gospel is that all of this is yours. This righteousness that you need and I need, that we don't have even on our best day, the very righteousness that you and I need, that, that, that God requires, he provides, and it's available to you if you'll believe. We know that this righteousness is not our righteousness, it's the perfect righteousness of Christ. That Jesus came into this world, he lived a life you and I were called to live and we didn't. He lived a life of perfection. He never sinned, he never transgressed the law. And yet he died upon a cross for sinners. And whoever would seek to put their faith in him, who would ever rest their case with him, receives his, we call imputed righteousness, or we're declared righteous. That's a pretty big deal. You're not righteous. And if you would believe in the gospel, God looks at you as if you are. That's amazing. You're not righteous, and if you would believe in Jesus, God sees you as righteous. He sees the righteousness of Christ clothing you. Friends, believing in the gospel is absolutely necessary for this to be received. Faith in Jesus is the conduit through which God's power in the gospel flows to us and changes us. The promise is, that this is available, but you, you must reach out that, 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 with that hand, that empty hand. I have nothing, God. Christ is my hope. Christ is my all. I, that, I'm trusting in what he did. That's faith. That's faith. Friends, the work of your salvation has been done. There's nothing you need to contribute to finish things up. God doesn't need you to finish up the salvation thing. He's finished it. Jesus said, it is finished. All you need is to reach out in faith and believe. Believe, that's the promise. 
That's what makes this, this gospel so powerful. God works. As this promise is so freeing because so often we're trying to work our way to God. Every single one of us are trying to do that. Every single one of us trying to work our way to heaven. That Alan Jackson song is wrong, right? Working, trying to get to heaven, it's not gonna work. Promise is so freeing is because salvation comes by faith in the finished work of Jesus. Now you see why Paul was busting at the seams to unashamedly preach the gospel in Rome. He had an unwavering confidence, an unwavering confidence in this message because it had power, it brought this gift of righteousness, and it's available to anyone who will believe. Anyone. There's nothing to be ashamed about this gospel. This message, this gospel is not fake news. It is not biased news. It is good news. And it's news that you can have absolute confidence in. Friend, are you ashamed of the gospel? Or are you eager about the gospel? I don't think you could be one. I think that that's the two options. Are you eager about the gospel or are you ashamed of the gospel? Friends, we're called not to be ashamed, but to stake our lives on it and faithfully live to share it because of who empowers it, because of what it provides and how it's received. Praise God for his good news. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this gospel. We thank you for this hope that's ours in Jesus. We thank you, God, that you have given us life. We thank you, Father, that this gospel that we sing of, that we talk about today, that we hear from your word, this very gospel that has changed us, it's a gospel with power, your power. So Lord, as we think upon it today, as we prepare even just a few moments to leave here, my, my prayer today, Lord, is that you would help us cling to this gospel, that we would not be a people ashamed of it, but God, that we would be a people confident in it because of what it brings and what it gives. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.